What's up, everybody? Welcome to season two of Explodive View. I took a little break there as we were buying a house and making the move. We're still in the Boston, Massachusetts suburbs, and I'm staring out the window at a bunch of snow that needs to be shoveled and salt that needs to be laid down. But anyhow, if you're in warm weather, don't take it for granted, please. This season on Explodive View, we have incredible guests. I've done some fun interviews so far, and I think there's some really valuable information I'm excited to share out with all of you. And I, I thought we'd kick off this season with Michael DeTullo. He's an iconic industrial designer who runs his own design practice on the West Coast, which is probably a lot warmer than it is here on the East Coast of the United States. But he's run, runs his own practice with his wife, and Michael has continued this prolific career designing every category under the sun. And most famously, he worked with Jordan Brand for a number of years. And I do want to pick Michael's brain about that and and also the process of starting his own studio. And some of us, I feel like, have had that voice in our head that says that you should go out on your own. And I think it's really difficult to make that leap. And one of the ways to overcome that is to just gather as much knowledge and understanding about what you're jumping into if you want to go out on your own as possible. And I think Michael is just such a great mentor for anyone who's trying to make that leap because he's done it and he's been there and he's walked those shoes before he's walked that line before. So I'm excited to really jump in and hear about the advice that he was given when he was doing it and all the tips that he has to share. So today on Explodive View, we're going to dive deeper into those items that are really, truly worth knowing and thinking about before you plan on going out or decide to go out on your own. So without further ado or further rambling, let's hear what he has to say. Michael DeTullo, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. I've been following your work for quite some time, so it's exciting to be chatting with you today and, and learn from your expertise. You're an expert in the industry and everything you have to say has been incredible to listen to So and, and super inspirational. So I'm excited to chat with you about consulting and your path yeah. to open your own studio. I think it's going to be really valuable. Thanks for the kind words. I mean, I just, I just really love what we do, Craig. So I think uh, whenever I get the opportunity to get other people excited about it or educate them a little bit more about it. I always, I always leap at that opportunity. So I appreciate being here. Yeah. So let's go into your background a bit. Cause I think it's always fun to listen to how people got into design. What was your path to get into design in the first place? Yeah. It's, uh, I, I always love to collect, um, designer origin stories as I call them, because it's not like for the most part, probably very few of us, um, are, had parents who wanted us to go into design or even knew what it was. And, you know, for me, I, I was always just drawing. I was fascinated by things, how they worked. I was fascinated by science fiction. And so I was always just kind of drawing what I thought the future of something would look like. I, I mean, I would come home from school. I was, a, you know, a latchkey Gen X kid. I'd come home from school and open up the Sears catalog to a random page. And if it was power drills, I would try to imagine what the future of the power drill would be like. So I was kind of, act, I guess I always was a designer basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and when my, my parents asked me what I wanted to do when I grow up, um, when I was 13, I said, I wanted to draw stuff from the future. And that's still a pretty accurate uh, wow. description for, for what it is I do. I don't know if I could come up with a shorter, more succinct statement than that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty incredible that you already knew what you wanted to do. And it was so close to what industrial design is. That's pretty incredible. It was a, uh, you know, uh, it was a nice 
moments and, and a few weeks after that, I remember my my father showed me an article in the Wall Street Journal about uh, Giorgetto Giugiaro, who those of you who don't know who he is, he, he designed the most famously the DeLorean, but has also designed pretty much anything you can imagine. And, uh, and he was like, is this it? Is this what you wanted to do? And I remember I ripped that hmm. article out and pinned it up next to my, my 13 year old bed. And like, that was, that's when I learned that it was called industrial design. So had I not made that prior statement of, I want to draw stuff from the future, just a few weeks before, who knows when I would have learned about it because, you know, like so many of us, if you, if you don't, uh, so many of our peers, if you don't learn about it early, you might not learn about it until you're in college or even after you have your first degree. So I was very fortunate. So you went on to open your own studio, which I want to talk to you in a bit about that. But I'd first like to bridge the gap because before you opened your own studio, you worked with Nike and famously worked with Jordan and Converse. So you have a rich history and career. So could you, could you take us through that briefly and, and then we can learn about how you transitioned into a consultancy? Sure. And there's, there's no, you know, just like there's no one path to becoming a designer, there's no one path to opening your own business. Um, for me, I've, I've always been very uh, much a student of the history of design. I always have been kind of romanticize some of what we'll call kind of the first generation of industrial designers, right? You know, Teague, Dreyfus, Lowy, um, Brooke Stevens, that whole group of designers that really coined the term industrial design and, and made it, you know, our, our profession a, a reality. Um, and they were all consultants. Um, and, and they also all worked on uh, a tremendous variety of things, Ray, Raymond Lowy in particular, you know, there really wasn't a category that he didn't work in. Mm-hmm. Um, and he worked from, you know, from branding through to finished product. So I always was very um, much a student of their careers and, and their work. And, and so I knew that there was a path to, to owning your own studio and being able to do anything. Uh, and that always really intrigued me. But for me, I, I wanted to learn about the industry first. You know, I think um, some people very famously start their own studios right out of school, like uh, Hartmut Esslinger, who started Frog right out of school. Yeah. And Frog was still one of the largest design firms in the world. Um, but for me, I wanted to go learn from other people. So I, I, my first job was at a small consulting studio in Connecticut called Evo. And it was a small team, but we had really big clients. So I was working with Nike, Burton Snowboards, um, Bose, a bunch of really big brands. And what was great about it, when I started, it was only five people. When I left, it was about 12 or 15. Hmm. I really got to see how the business worked. Uh, there were two partners and it was very much a family. So I got to see you know, how they pitched work. I got to present to clients within my first two years. Wow, um, that's great. And, you know, by the time I left, I, I was there for about four years. By the time I left, I was running the Nike account as a 26 year old. So I think it was a really great experience to be working for a small firm that had so many different big clients. Um, and, and the, the creative director there, who was one of the partners, Aaron Szymanski, because we were so small and, it, and they treated it like a family, he really kind of took me under his wing 
and became like an older brother to me. So, Mm. um, I was so fortunate to have that experience. Um, after, after four and a half years there, I got the sense that we were doing great work. Um, clients would really love the work, but you know, things would come out and they, they might be radically changed or, or projects would get canceled. And I had no idea why. Mm. <laughs> and we all were kind of career consultants that were working there. So none of us really knew why. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to go work corporate so that I could understand what was going on when, when the project kind of left our hands. Um, having worked closely with Nike and really having enjoyed footwear, I wanted to go into footwear. I, I only knew, all I knew of, of footwear was Nike. I was even doing work for Nike when I was in school. They, they sponsored um, one of my semesters for a senior year. Oh, that's great. Um, so, so, but I, so only knowing Nike, I wanted to interview around. So I interviewed with, um, Adidas, New Balance, Converse, um, Diesel at the time, which was kind of a, this was like 2003. So Diesel was kind of a big deal at the time. Um, and yeah, a few other brands. And then I think I, I had offers from three of them at least right away. And then Nike was my, my last interview and it just felt they weren't, they weren't the, they didn't have the highest offer. The other, some of the other brands offered more, um, dollar wise, but it just felt right. It mm. felt like the place I should be. Um, so I accepted the role at Nike, uh, in the sportswear division at the time there were, I, I think I interviewed with five divisions and three of them made me offers. So oh, wow. I, I selected the sportswear offer. Um, and, uh, cause it was a new division at the time. And I thought that was also, you know, to be part of this big brand, but a new division was really exciting. So I worked in sportswear for about two years and then, um, I applied to move over to Jordan and I worked in Jordan for about two and a half years, uh, and got to work you know, directly with Michael Jordan, Carmelo Anthony, Jer- Derek Jeter. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And I know the intro, I could, we could talk for an hour about, there's a lot of stories. But yeah, so, <laughs> I'm so curious what that experience was like, because work, working yeah. with him. Do you have a quick story yeah. you could share about that experience? Um, I mean, all I could say is it was intense and amazing. And I mean, Michael, if you, if you watched, um, you know, the documentary that was out about Michael this year, I mean, that's how he's like, you know, and, and it's, he picks up every detail and is interested and loves design. And so, you know, getting to spend, I mean, the, my, my most memorable experience with him was getting to spend three days with him, uh, at a motorcycle race in, uh, the middle of Ohio, mid Ohio racetrack. And mm-hmm. so, and it was, the race was just rained out completely. So pretty much just spent three days drawing shoes and drinking with Michael Jordan. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, That's so cool. Yeah. And anyone, anyone who wants to yeah. check it out, uh, the show is the last dance and it's a fantastic documentary miniseries on, on Jordan's career. It's on Netflix. I highly recommend yeah. it. It's a, it's very good. And that must've, that must've been such a great experience for you. Yeah. So now, so now you've, you've had all these accomplishments and I wonder if you even go back to when you first started at your first job at Evo, did you always have this sense that you could go out and, and work on your own or 
you want that you wanted to do that or was that not really an idea you had in your head at the time no i i mean i i loved i think wherever i've worked i've wanted to be i don't know it's like a and i don't want to come off as arrogant but wherever i've worked i've wanted to be at least you know to be the best the best i could be mm-hmm. and so working at, i loved working at evo i mean I, I i didn't really ever want to leave there and i thought you know, I thought the path for me there would be to become a partner. And then when I, I started working at Nike, um, the chief design officer at Nike, he wasn't the chief design officer then. He was the, um, he was then, uh, when I started, he was just the director of footwear design and then he became VP of footwear design and moved up the ranks, but he became a, a really strong mentor to me, John Hoke. And, um, we would go to lunch at least once a month. And I remember, uh, when he, when he had first become VP of design, he was the first ever VP level designer there. Hmm. Um, when he first became VP, he was like, Hey Michael, what's your, what's your end game here? And I was like, your job. And he looked at me, he was like, my job. I'm like, yeah, not tomorrow, John. I mean, like when right. you're done with it, you know, yeah. when you're done, I'd, I'd love to have that job. Right. Um, and I, I remember, um, a few months before I left, uh, I, I ended up being at Nike about eight years, maybe nine, uh, eight and a half, something like that. And right before I left, John had me present to the board of directors, Nike, and he introduced me. At, and as he introduced me, he's like, this is Michael DiTullo. He'll be retiring from Nike. Like we will keep him forever. And that, mm-hmm. I think that was the moment that crystallized in my mind. I'm like, man, I'm wow. 32 years old. And like, is the whole rest of my life just like, now it's just in this room, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that, it's and that like scared in a weird way, scared me into leaving in not, not directly, but into thinking about like, where am I, what else do I want to do? Yeah. Um, do I want to be here? I mean, I, John has, he's still at Nike. I, I had coffee with him right before everything locked down. And this is Nike, I believe was his first job out of school. So you know, same with Tinker Hatfield's like been at Nike's whole career. And it's like, I, I, and I, I love that. I mean, they, they are just so, they are synonymous with the the place in, in a weird way. Yeah. I wish I kind of had that, but I'm a little bit more of a Rolling Stone, I guess. And, and, um, I, I think that's when I, I realized like, Hey, my whole, um, purpose for going corporate was to learn um, about what the process was on the other side. And I got to travel the world with Nike on research trips. I got to go to factories all the time in Asia. And I, I got to interact with the highest level of the company up to the board of directors. And I realized like, I think I've learned what I wanted to learn. And now it's time to go take that back to the consulting side. So I wanted to, I didn't want to start my own studio. I wanted to go to a really big consultancy to understand how that, that worked. So, um, ironically, literally like maybe two months after that board presentation, frog recruited me Hmm. to be creative director for San Francisco studio. And, um, that felt like the, the right next learning experience for me. And and I, I talked to John Hoke about it at Nike, not as, not as the chief design officer at Nike, but as my mentor yeah. of what should I do? And, uh, he was like, yeah, go learn, you know, hmm. <laughs> and, uh, come back if you want to come back. What a great mentor. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. He, 
he was like, literally, Michael, if you don't like it, you call me in two weeks, I'll give you your job back. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Uh, just to, <laughs> That's like, a pretty good situation to be in. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to eliminate all the fear. Cause he's like, I know how scared you are right now. He's like, I've been in your seat many times and I've not done it. So, um, he's like, I'm going to, I want you to do it. So yeah, I don't know if I could be that magnanimous. That was pretty amazing. Um, so going to the great thing about going to frog as a creative director was, you know, uh, versus we were working with the biggest clients imaginable and, you know, our, our project size is like a small project would be $150,000, $200,000. A medium-sized project would be one to two million. And big projects would be bigger than that. And so I got to see how a machine like Frog pitches and acquires that work. And what they bill, you know, they were billing my time. This is, mm-hmm. this is 10 years ago now. They're billing my time at 350 bucks an hour plus. You know, right. So you wow. start to, you understand, um, the value, the literal value, not the conceptual value, like the dollar amount value that design can command, um, and how to do it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that, that was an amazing experience. Hartman was retired, but, um, the project manager I worked with, uh, she actually was Hartmut's uh, neighbor. And she was like, you got to mm-hmm. come in and meet, the, you got to come in and meet this Michael guy because he's like, this huge nerd. It's <laughs> such a great introduction. And, uh, I, I mean, Hartman and I just immediately just like he, so he came in, uh, like he, and he would come in like every few months or so. So he, he came in and we just like immediately clicked. And, uh, I think he's, he, he's a, a very, um, not intentionally so, but an intimidating guy, you know, I mean, it's Hartman Esslinger, like worked with Steve jobs. Um, hmm. And he's got this German accent and, and, you know, he's very, he's a little gruff. And, um, <laughs> I, I think he liked that. I like immediately like took no shit from him. And I remember, uh, he came in and, and Jeanette, the project manager was like, Oh, you know, this is Michael. He used to work at Nike and Hartman's like, Oh, I, I designed these Nikes that I'm wearing. He was wearing these orange Nikes, wow. Nike Air Max. And I was like, Oh, you, you designed them. How so? What do you mean? You, you drew that, you drew that shoe. And he's like, why? Well, I, I went on Nike ID and I picked the colors. I'm like, oh, so that's designed to you now? Your heart my Edslinger, that's designed. And he was like, I like, he was immediately like, I like this guy. <laughs> uh, wow. But I, I worked with Hartmut to get a bunch of his, his historical work, which was just laying around the office, um, shamefully so. I mean, I, when I interviewed at Frog, all of this, the Apple Snow White prototypes were literally stacked in a pile in the basement. Hmm. And I remember I, I was to the person who was giving me the tour. I was like, you should be ashamed of yourself. This is design history. And these are irreplaceable prototypes. And they're like stacked in a teetering pile. <laughs> Collecting like, cobwebs and dust. And, and uh, I was like, it's, dis- it's disgusting. And by the time I started, there were all this new shelving had been built in the lobby and all the prototypes were out. Wow. <laughs> <in the lobby. laughs> and, but I was like, you know, I, we don't deserve we don't deserve to have these prototypes. And so I worked with Hartmut to get them donated to um, SF MoMA. So Mm. now they're all in the uh, SF MoMA collection. Um, Wow. That's cool. Anyway. So we're still, I saw, I'll keep it moving. One of our, one of our big, I was about, I was thinking about leaving frog and starting my own studio when the 
one of the biggest clients that I had worked with um, had asked me to come in-house as their chief design officer. And they had no internal design and to basically create like a mini frog internally. And I was like, this is perfect because it's like, I'll be getting to start my own studio, but somebody else will be paying for it. Right. Um, and it's a conglomerate. So we had four different brands to work with. So I'm like, that's great. Well, we're starting a studio and the studio has four clients. Um, and so I did that for, how long did I do that for? I did it for five years. Um, and you know, got the machine up and running. We were really proud of the work we did there. Um, built a, a great team. And but I, I, I had kind of an internal clock set. My goal was to start my own studio by the time I turned 40. Mm-hmm. And I I had I had passed the 40 mark and it was tough because I was getting compensated a lot. I I was really enjoying what I was doing. I love my team. But I think I was I was burning out a little bit, or, or I guess more accurately, I, I had maybe hit a, a ceiling in what I was learning. And my wife was, you know, she's like, "You said you wanted to do this by the time you're 40. You're a few months away from turning 41. You could still do it while you're 40, and like yeah. tick that box." And she's like, I, "I think you've learned everything that you said you wanted to learn. So there's really no excuse other than just fear." Right. And um, and I, I was ter- I was terrified, but you know I, I I went about it like a design project. I I started um, just like you would do design research and ethnography. I started reaching out to you know like medium sized business owners that I really respected and, and who I, I'd known through the years. Mm-hmm. And I did about twelve different interviews. This is before I started the studio. Did about twelve different interviews with different um, company owners. And just, just probing them on like, do you think I could do this? Like, what would you, you know, what advice would you give to yourself when you're starting your business? And of that initial 12, six of them asked me to write proposals. And I was like, I don't even have, I don't have a business yet. I still have a job. Yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, yeah, we just want to be one of your first clients. And wow, that's of those, great. Of those six proposals, um, two were right. So I just had a time every, you know, I, I, I filed out all my legal work, uh, set up got my contract set up and, you know, put in my notice. Um, and by the time the, f- the first official day of my studio, like that Monday, my first contract signed. And on Wednesday, the third day of my studio, I met with another pair of potential clients for contract signing. And uh, they were like, Michael, we're so proud to be your first client. And I was like, wow, that's so cute guys. But you're number two. <laughs> wow. That's a good start. That's incredible. <laughs> it was the third day. You're- the third day of your company. And I'm like, ah, well, you know, yeah. So, so I think for me, long, long, um, story that wrap up that land that will land the plane on this intro here. For me, it was all about like getting the necessary skills and confidence so that when I started the studio, um, literally like didn't skip a beat in terms of my own personal revenue and just work, work went immediately, like very fluidly right into working. Yeah, that's excellent. I, and I want to get into the the prep too and some of those steps you took, but I want to first start with any advice you might have to somebody who's listening to this and it, you know they're interested in maybe starting their own thing or you know they've had that itch that you had uh, ever since Evo, you know, and th- and they want to get out and on their own and they're trying to figure out 
you know, is this the right move for them? Um, you know, what would be your recommendations or advice in that moment for someone who's thinking about it or, or has that itch? Yeah, I think the first piece of advice I would give is to ask yourself a simple question. And that question is why, why do you want to go out on your own? And, and there are several right answers and several wrong answers to that question, in my opinion. So like, if you want to go out on your own, cause you don't want a boss anymore, that's the wrong, that's the wrong answer because now you, you will, you will have bosses. They'll just be called clients now. Right. And you're, you will be in the service of them. So if you're not good with dealing with your boss, probably not going to be good with dealing with your clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and if you have to, you have to really determine why you want to do this. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, the answer to that question is uh, one, I, I wanted to just be myself more. Um, you know, I'm someone that's very public, you could say, I guess, in terms of, des- in terms of designers in our field. And I, I say a lot of, I say a lot of things. I, I say what I truly mean. Yeah. Um, and I'm not afraid of that, but when I worked for other people, I always was a little afraid of like doing an interview, do something like this. And I would always be like, Oh, is this going to like bite me? Is somebody, somebody <laughs> going to go back and be like, I listened to that podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, so I wanted to be more myself mm-hmm. one, um, and, and stand up for what I want to stand up with and two. I have always just had an insatiable appetite to work across industries and, and across specializations. So, you know, in the studio here, like right now we're working on a super high end, uh, woman's footwear brand, like branding and product. And we're working Mm -hmm. on products, people with diabetes and architectural, uh, wall and ceiling systems and like all these like very, very different products. Um, and some housewares projects. And so I, I love that. And for, for me, um, that the cross pollination between those, those projects, um, makes me do better work. Cause I'm, I'm learning about all these different things at the same time. And that, that jumble, like keeping all those balls in the air is really energizing for me. Yeah. Um, so, so if that's not something you want to do, then <laughs> it's, it's probably not going to be the right thing for you. Right. Um, so anyway, I think that's my first piece of advice is like, don't do it because you think it's the thing you should do or, you know, you're bored of your job. Do it because it's what you, who you really are and it's what you really want to do. Um, so anyway, that would be my first piece of advice. That's great advice. Yeah. That's, uh, it's something that's worth thinking about and taking the time to really reflect on, you know, what's the right answer and, and my second, you know, to that why question. My second, I guess my second piece would be, do you want to spend half of your time running a business? And if the answer is no, then don't go out on your own. <laughs> because if you, I mean, sure, yeah. at your job, you might be in a lot of meetings you don't want to be in and, you know, you might have to like fill out expense reports and do other things that you're like, I shouldn't be spending my time on this. I just want to go out on my own and work. Well, guess what? When you go out on your own and work, now you run a business. So, you know, how much, how, how willing are you to learn about contract law and tax law? And, yeah. and like, just, these are things you're going to have to spend meaningful amounts of your time on. And, you know, for me, it's exciting because we're, we're building this thing and it's, 
it's, it's just a part of it and you have to do it. But if, if you don't want to do that stuff, then again, it's just, you know, it's not going to be good. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's another valuable point. You know, you, you don't realize the amount of time until you're in the thick of it and you're trying to figure out that you have to get an accountant and you're trying to figure out how to make this brand legal and realize that now I have to deal with the town, the city you're in. It's, it's, it, there's these things yeah. that happen that you just realize in the moment um, that you have to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'd say a, a healthy estimate is you'll, you'll spend about 50% of your time will be non-billable. So in other words, it'll be 50% of your time will be, you know, pitching work, meeting with potential clients, you know, working through the, uh, the sales process, uh, to get to a signed contract, getting contracts signed. So you're not getting compensated for that time. Right. Right. And then on the backside, you're going to have to be billing and dealing with accounts payable people and, uh, and then dealing with your taxes and making sure all your legal docs are airtight. And so it's just, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into running your own business. It's, it's not just like putting up a website and making a cool logo for yourself. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I want to dive into some of those, but I, I just want to first ask, you mentioned that you did a number of interviews before you started the studio. Do you have any piece of advice that you received prior to starting your studio that, you know, you think are worth jumping into? Um, I think the, the biggest one that, uh, one of my mentors told me was that, um, so this will go contrary to a lot of the things I just said. <laughs> one, okay. one of the things he said was, I, I never met anyone who regretted started starting a business, but I met plenty of people who regretted not starting one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think I needed that. Like, I think he could see how, how terrified I was to, to leave my, my cushy corporate life where, you know, I had a, a company Audi and all these perks oh, and wow. stuff. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like, I'm driving like an, Audi S5 for free. Um, yeah, like that's, I'm gonna, that's incredible. Yeah, I'm going to give up all this stuff to like really bet on myself, right? And so, um, but I think he saw that I needed that push. And so for, for me, it was really great to speak to them. And, you know, none of them said like, no, you, you shouldn't do this. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, that gave me the confidence to be like, okay, I could probably, I, I, I could do this. Um, that's interesting because so, one of, one of the first interviews I did f- uh, for an episode was with Peter Bressler, um, from Bressler group or he started Bressler group and, and he said a similar thing. He asked someone who was a mentor of his, you know, you know, this is so much work or, you know, he's kind of just starting off so much work, you know, should I keep going? And his mentor said, well, you know, this isn't for everyone. Um, not everyone can do it. And that gave him enough drive to say, no, I'm not going to stop doing this. I'm going to make it happen. So it's really interesting that that little piece of advice or that statement can push you. Yeah, further. that's true. Everybody needs mentors. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so let's jump into the prep work. So the things that are necessary. So if somebody's out there listening and you know they've said yes, they, you know they they don't want to regret not doing this, or you know they they've always had this itch, and and somebody really wants to jump into this. What are some of the key points you think are worthwhile? that someone really invests their time in when they're first starting off. So for instance, I know a big one I've heard a lot when people are first kicking off a big question in their mind is figuring out billable rates, for instance, and and even going to like kind of legal and accounting side of things. Um, but 
that right off the bat, that idea of figuring out your billable rate is a big one um, that everybody's always asking about. What, what would be your recommendations there? Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think just on the legal thing, I want to just hit this really quick that um, I think, you know, having worked at Evo and at Frog, I saw how good our contracts were. And when I was chief design officer at uh, Sound United, you know, I had hired Ziba and a few other design firms. So I gotten, I could see how good contracts had gotten and, um, you know, contracts are, are so important. You know, that's the only, it's the document that is the blueprint for the project. Right. And so, you know, the, the very first thing I did was hire a great lawyer. I, I worked through, um, there's an organization in California called California. Um, things like, I think it's called California lawyers for the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of my, a, f- a friend of mine who was also a, um, so we were donors to the, uh, San Diego Museum of Modern Art and a, a, a friend that I had made through that organization who is a lawyer. She was the head of the Southern California chapter. So she recommended a great lawyer who actually did contract law for athletes, hmm. um, but kind of moonlighted on the side doing some work for, in the arts. So he helped me to get just my standard contract in order, um, like right out of, off the bat. And that's just so important. It has all the terms as to like, you know, payment terms, uh, IP usage terms, like gives us the rights to use the work once the client makes, makes the project public. Mm. And, you know, just, it's just spells it all out in black and white. And, um, and that's kind of like our starting place. And, uh, I remember that our second client was like, who wrote this contract? This is like (laughs) that lawyer (laughs) because it's just, there's no getting out of it. And that's, that's, that's so, and it costs a lot of money. It costs money to do that. Um, and my lawyer coincidentally bills at the same rate I do. So, you know, it's, wow. like, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's worth, uh, it was worth it because you kind of did that work once and it just makes it much, you know, we made it very kind of plug and I, I, I knew what I wanted from him. So I wanted a contract where I could kind of plug and play different things into, um, as we, as we, develop different SOWs, different scopes of work for different clients. Mm -hmm. So that was so important. And I mean, it took weeks to get that right. Now, in terms of creating a billable rate, um, I don't, I don't, I, I very rarely do things on an hourly basis. Mm -hmm. I I almost always do things on a flat fee. Um, but I use my, my hourly rate to create the flat fee estimate. Um, and so for me, when I, when I um, make a proposal for a project, I always build it out two ways. The first way I do is kind of bottoms up, which is, you know, my hourly rate, which we'll talk about how to get to, um, you know, and then if I remember, if I have any junior designers on the project, their hourly rates mm-hmm. with the estimate of how long I think everything will take with a little bit of extra time for meetings and all these different things. And that's my, my bottoms up estimate. And that's, that's basically the minimum we could charge, you know, without, you know, while still making money. Now, now I'll try to find, do the opposite exercise, which is a top down exercise of how much is this output worth to the client? Right. So if, you know, we're working on a new shoe for Nike, for example, that output is going to be worth millions of dollars. Right. 
you know, like I, I worked on a shoe in Jordan that sold over 300,000 pairs in, in one quarter in three months. And that was a $180 shoe. Wow. So, you know, wholesale. So that means, you know, wholesale that was, let's do some quick math as 90 bucks wholesale. Um, so let's say, you know, half of that was going towards the manufacturer. So divide that by two again. So let's say they were making about 40 bucks per shoe, mm-hmm. you know, times 300,000. So that's $12 million. So, you know, that's not what I got paid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so now, so I have the calculation now of what I need to make mm-hmm. to the minimum num- number I need to charge. And now I just learned that the company is going to make $12 million off it. Let's just, you know, if it was that same project. So what's the value of the, the design work in that scenario? And so if the value of the design work is less than my, my minimum that I can charge, then I don't, I don't pitch on that project. Hmm. I just like, sorry, we can't bid on that. It's not going to work. You know, if I don't think the client has that budget, but if I can help the client to see, well, here's the value of it. And let's say the value is double what my minimum price is. Well, now I'm going to charge the bigger number, right? Cause that's the value of it. Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So, and, but you need to get to the hourly rate first. So now we can, now we can get to your question. <laughs> what is the hourly? How do you develop an hourly rate? Well, let's not do it for me because I'm kind of a little bit of an outlier. Uh, but let's say, let's say I, I believe the, the income number you need to make to reach like maximum happiness in the United States is $75,000. Mm. I remember reading an article saying like anything, a research thing that anything you make over that doesn't add to your happiness, but, but anything you make below that, that does subtract from it. So let's say you want to make 75 K. So now you want to bring home 75,000, but you're, you're independent. So you got to buy health insurance, right? Right. So, so let's say that's another, let's just say, uh, 6,000 per year. Let's call it five. Let's make it even easy on myself. We're not mathematicians here. We're designers. <laughs> so, yeah. so now we're up to 80 K. Now you got to rent a space, right? So even if you're using a spare bedroom in your apartment or what have you, you need to calculate the value of that space, mm-hmm. right? Let's just, again, make it easy on ourselves and add another 10K for a space. And let's say you're going to want to contribute to a 401K or some kind of a retirement um, plan every year. So let's add a minimum. Let's add 15K for that. I guess not. I guess if you're making 75K, probably 10K is more reasonable. I'll do 10. Um, and then now you have to buy software and hardware and all those things. Um, so let's add another 5k for that. So your 75k just went to 75, 80, 90, 100, 105k. Yeah, it jumps quick, right? That's just so you can make the 75. Yeah. Yeah, that's we're and we're doing round numbers here, but that's just so you can make the 75k. Yeah. Uh so you need to be bringing in in 105k in revenue to make that 75k. Um so now how do we develop that into, we know how much we need to make per year. Now, how do we develop that into an hourly rate? Well, I already said that you're going to spend about half of your time 
on non-billable activities. Mm-hmm. The average work year for a worker is 2,000 hours. Okay. Okay. So that's because you're going to want to take some vacation. You want to take your weekends. Maybe you don't want to work 24 hours a day. So (laughs) a normal person can work about 2000 hours a year. And we said, you can only, you can only, uh, uh, bill about half of that, right? Because it's like just all the other work you have to do. So that means you only have 1000 hours to make that $105,000. So your billable rate is $105 an hour. Right. Wow. If, if you want to, if you want to not kill yourself, but you, you could, you can make it less, but to make that same amount of money, you have to work a lot more. So if you want to have a reasonable work life balance and recharge your batteries and go get inspired and, and do continuing ed things and not burn out, you're going to have to find a way to build that. Um, now that's about a third of what my, my billable rate is. Hmm. So you, you get the sense of, and there are designers that charge a lot more than I do. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's just, you know, and, and all the time clients will say like, well, I can, you know, I can get that project for 10 grand. I'm like, great. You know, if you can find someone that can do as good a work of me at one fifth the price, <laughs> why are we having a conversation? Well, we really want to work with right. you. Yeah. We really want to work with you though. Like, well, I already told you what that costs. Right. I think this is, so, yeah. So you're not, so not going to, so you're not going to, uh, negotiate your price down. I'm like, I'm not going to lose money. No, I think that's pretty clear. So yeah, it's this, or, you know, I can't, I can't help you. You know, do you want to work with me or not? <laughs> and so right. it's, it's that simple. <laughs> I think that's one of the big questions. The first thing that you think about when you're going on your own and you're trying to support your family, you got to pay your student loans and bills. So having a rough estimate of how much you need to live and, you know, a happy life, but also pay debt. So, so having kind of a rough estimate and, and making sure that you're providing value to the client, but getting paid what you're worth is really important. It also doesn't necessarily mean that you should be quoting out projects based off that hourly rate, but it just gives you kind of a baseline rate of where you should start and you can kind of go from there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and as I said, my lawyer bills at the same rate as I do and my accountant also bills at the same rate that I do. So, so <laughs> it's not like, it's not like companies aren't paying these, these types of fees for other professional services. Yeah. And guess what? What they sell is the product. There's, there's nothing to write a contract for and there's nothing to do accounting for if they have no product. So right. we can be, uh, commanding, you know, much more. Um, I'd, I'd highly recommend there's, uh, if you, if you've ever heard of Chris Doe, uh, last Chris, last name's D O, uh, he's got a YouTube channel called the future F U T R. Yeah. Yeah. He does a great pricing thing, um, on, on pricing out a logo project. I mean, he charges like 60 grand for a logo and mm-hmm. you know, you can go on Fiverr and get a logo for five bucks. Right. So, so, you know, imagine <laughs> the price pressure that he's facing, but he's just like, that's what right. it, you want to work with me. That's what it costs. Um, so you need to command your value. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I, I love what we've covered so far. So, you know, we've talked about billable rates and, and then how important it is to get your, your contracts straight and find a lawyer that's going to help you write up those contracts and terms. So that way, you know, when you're working with clients, everybody's clear what you're getting out of it and what your client's getting out of it and what the legal ramifications are of what that relationship is going to be like. Um, anything else that you think is important or, you know, or a top priority to get right? You know, one that pops into my mind is buying equipment. When I, when I first started off, I didn't really have that realization until I left my job and I had to return my laptop to the business. And I realized I had to buy my own 
you know, software licenses, computer, monitor. Um, so I think that's a big one that's important to quote out prior to even jumping into anything uh, to make sure you have the funds to invest in those things. Yeah. And my accountant is like, Michael, how many computers do you need to keep buying? Cause I'm like, you know, it's like we're designers. <laughs> like you, your rig is important. You want to be doing want the yeah. latest and greatest equipment. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. Um, I think ha- having a great accountant because you're going to want to, um, you know, most businesses that are audited are audited within their first five years because they know you're going to be messing up. And so having a great accountant that's not going to mess up and do everything right for you mm-hmm. is so important. And and to me, it's, it's, it's worth the high expense because, you know, he saves me time. That's more time I can be billing. Um, and I think working with your lawyer to file yourself as an LLC is really important. So we're an LLC that files as an S corp on our taxes. Uh, so Mm -hmm. just tons of benefits to all those things. Most importantly, being an LLC, just to have the legal protection so that, you know, you, you, you want that legal distance between, um, you and your company versus if you're a sole proprietor, you know, if something goes south, you could lose everything. So, yeah. Uh, but you know, so being filed as an LLC helps us with that. Also, we have a very, very strict indemnification clause in all of our, our contracts. And for anybody who doesn't know indemnification and I'm not a legal expert, so don't don't rely on me for any advice here, but the indemnification is basically changing the liability from yourself to the the bigger company. Yeah. (laughs) Having, having a good umbrella insurance and policy, all these things are really important. Yeah, it's worthwhile to keep in mind too. And and you're setting this up at that point in time, you're, you're setting it up as a one-person consultancy, but some people have the goal of expanding into a, a studio with more people. So what's that process like? So did you have this idea right off the bat that you wanted to hire people in and, and start a larger studio or did you do consulting for a while and with you know the larger goal to eventually hire in more people? So we fluctuated a ton or yeah, we, we have changed a lot of our goals on this and, and just through some, some great mentorship. Um, I remember one of my early mentors when I started the business, uh, three or four years ago, he had built up, he was, he's in his probably early sixties, maybe late fifties, um, built up a, a big, studio, um, branding consultancy in San Diego. And I think he got to like 35, 40 people Mm -hmm. and he got to a point where he was just like, this is miserable. (laughs) It's like, it's (laughs) it's like, all I'm doing is like running the studio. I'm not designing anything anymore. And he's like, it's, I'm only like dealing with problems. And so he shut it all down and (laughs) he, he, uh, he even, he even owned his, his building and which must've been a, a huge space, you know, a big a, a space to have 35 designers. Um, right. he, he shut it all down. He, you know, leased out his, his building and then he leased a tiny little retail storefront. Um, and he loves like vintage, um, Italian road cycles. So like it, he would, you know, wrench on some vintage, uh, Bianchi's and things like that in the front of the, of the shop. And then mm. in the back of the shop was a conference table and a desk. And he's like, yeah, I only take three clients at a time. And, uh, his rule was I look for clients where I can do the least amount of work, but have the most amount of value to them mm. and charge 
most amount of money. Wow. So, so, and he was like, if I could, he's like, Michael, if I could teach you that in your forties, uh, I'll have been a good mentor because he's like, it took me like 30 years to figure that out. Yeah. Um, and so we had gotten to the point in our first year, I had two kind of junior designers working on a contract basis for me pretty much full time. And I was like, I gotta like, I'm either got to bring these two on full time and make them W2 employees and start growing. Um, or I need to reconfigure, uh, like what my mentor Ron said to do. And, and so my wife, who's my business partner, um, we decided to follow Ron's advice. So we kind of reconfigured our goals. And so she's my only salaried employee and she, I had gotten busy enough where I really needed someone to bring someone on to do the finances, mm-hmm. um, project management, uh, and just kind of help with a lot of client relations. And I'm like, I could either, you know, pay somebody 75 to 80 K to do this work or, you know, who do I trust more than my wife who we've been together since I was 19 years old yeah. and uh, we work really well together. So brought her into the business, um, and made her a W2 employee. And then we, we still have, we still work with contractors like to mainly to do, you know, CAD work and things that doesn't make sense to have my full billable rate at. Mm -hmm. Um, but we decided on this kind of zero, what I kind of, I called the zero growth strategy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Again, like working corporate, you know, I, I, um, when I was at sound United, we had four brands and one of the smaller brands made almost as much in profit as the biggest brand. And, and I got to see like, there's just different ways to run businesses. So, you know, you could run it like a top line business where you're just pushing the top line to be as big as possible. Um, yeah. But if your expenses are running close to your top line, you're not making very much money. It's just throughput, right? So if, if, you're, if you're running a big studio with four, 40 designers, your top revenue line is probably huge. But yeah your expense line is probably not that far off because you have to now pay for that bigger space and all those computers and HR people and IT people. Um, and so another, another one of my friends, that was what, what he had recommended. He had told me, he's like, Hey, you know, he, he had a studio at about, of about 30 and he was like, I'm not making any more money than when it was three people because mm. it's just, everything kind of grows exponentially. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, of course he has a big business that he could sell the whole business. If somebody, you know, if some, some big, uh, you know, you see like firms like McKinsey buying lunar and things like that. Right. So yeah. he has a business that he could potentially sell. Um, but that's not really my goal. That's, you know, I named the business after myself for a reason. I want to do this forever. And so for me, I wanted to focus on being more profitable, not on just being, having a bigger top line. So yeah. we decided on this kind of zero growth strategy, um, where again, so we just like my mentor runs, we only take three projects and clients know they're going to get a third of my billable time. It's, it's my name on the door. I stand by everything we do. You know, you're going to talk to somebody, you're going to talk to me, not some in, not, not an intern. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's, that's the way we've done it. So we're kind of this in the middle, you know, a, a little bit bigger than 
you know, I like cringe when I heard the word freelancer, I'm not a freelancer. Um, yeah. Like, I don't know if we're like a giant studio. And of course now with COVID on my, we, we bought this to facilitate the business. We bought this kind of oversized uh, mid-century house in Portland. And I'm sitting right now in my studio, which is kind of an annex to the house. And it's big enough to have an eight person uh, conference table and a few desks with a few different uh, workstation setups. And, um, you know, now now all my friends are like, you guys were geniuses. But I mean, it just we just got lucky that all this happened. Not lucky that this happened, but we just timed it right. (laughs) Yeah, that's really cool, though. It's, It's interesting. I feel like the path that you started at Evo to get to where you're at now, just like you said, you, you could take so many different paths to get where you ended up. And also it's really interesting to hear how you got to this point and took your mentor's advice to heart and that you're implementing it with the three client rule and, and keeping the zero growth strategy. So, um, you know, as a, as a business method, it's, it's really working great. Um, the third thing I, I'll say is I too worked with my wife for a number of years and we both worked uh, together at Newell and we had a blast and it's, it's fun to be able to work with your significant other. So that must be nice. We love it. I mean, she has her, she's, uh, has her, I'm an extrovert. Uh, so she has her own office with a door on it. So that, <laughs> you know, like, just yeah, that's important, but, but, uh, I mean, we, I mean, I just love like having lunch with her every day and, and taking coffee breaks together and, mm-hmm. and, we had, but right before uh, lockdown, we had University of Oregon students in the studio. I think I think twelve or thirteen of them, and we did a little like career visioning workshop with them. And um, anyway, I just I love doing that kind of stuff with her. She's she's actually trained as a, a psychotherapist, so also she brings a great different set of skills to the table when we're doing like ethnography and just you know dealing with that kind of kind of thing. So mm-hmm. uh, we compliment each other. So do you have any other advice that you think are, is worthwhile to talk about that you've learned throughout your career? Any other pieces that you think are, are worth hearing? I think um, it's a good question. I mean, I think the first piece of, of advice there would be to just define what you want to do. You know, for, for me, I love design. So um when I was at Sound United, you know, having a big team, 20 plus person team, I got pretty removed from the work. I always had my pet projects, but part of the reason why I opened up my own studio was I wanted to be hands-on with the work again. So, yeah. you know, growing the studio to the point where I got, again, got away from the work didn't make sense uh, from, from my goals. Um, so define those goals for yourself. What, what type of uh, business do you want to build? What do you want to be involved with? Um, and, and once you set those goals and define your principles and your ethics, stick to them, you know, you're, you're going to say, you have to say no to some things and you have to maybe even fire some clients sometimes. And it's just, it's all part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I think being in business is, it's, it's not always easy. You know, it's, uh, it, it can look easy in hindsight, um, but there's going to be hard moments. There's going to be moments with difficult decisions. There's going to be moments where you have to have hard conversations with, uh, with clients and, and with employees and be prepared for that and, and embrace that. Cause, uh, as one of my other boss once said to me, you get to have those problems, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. those are problems yeah, right. that not everybody gets to have. So, but they re- require, um, they require your attention. They're not a bother. That's, that's 
part of your business and they, they deserve um, your design mind. You know, they're, those are design problems in their own right. Yeah, that, w- that was one of the pieces of advice that I was told when I was starting to move up in my career. And, you, you know, you start to move away from the design that you, the traditional design that you learned in school and more into the, those management roles. And you're no longer necessarily designing products, but you're designing the studio. And it's just a reframing of the mind that you, this idea that you're designing the environment and you're designing the work process and methodologies. I think reframing it to that is really helpful. It's a helpful way to, to think about moving into those management roles because you're still doing design work. It's just designing the studio. Yeah. In a way I did it all backwards. You know, I, 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 I was, I worked so hard to become a design leader so young and I, I became a director at 30. I, I, I don't know if I was the youngest director ever at Nike, but I was definitely the youngest at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I think while I loved it, I, I loved, I love coaching. I love building teams. I think I, I, I didn't have quite my fill of being a senior designer. And so in a weird way, I just kind of arced back. So I went from being you know, a director, a design director to a creative director, to a chief design officer, to hmm. basically starting my own business so I could be a super senior designer again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's yeah. okay. You know, I mean, I just, everybody's got their own weird way to do it. Um, but uh, yeah. And I think the other, the other last thing I'll, I'll leave you with is, you know, just don't believe everything you see online. You know, you see a lot of independent designers. They look like they have these very glamorous lives maybe. Um, but remember that that's all somewhat fictional, right? To some degree. And you don't, you never know what's behind that, you know, is, is what they're showing you really what their day is like, or, you know, you know, maybe they come from a wealthy family or maybe their spouse makes a lot of money so they don't have to worry about the finances so much. Um, you know, I guess yeah. I'm trying to say is don't measure your business by someone else's business, only measure your business by what you did last year and what you think you can do this year. Yeah, it's great advice. I think we can all get, you know, caught up in that loop, especially with social media. I, I feel like we're always being constantly bombarded with what other people are doing. And and then there's always that game of comparison, which is incredibly dangerous. And I definitely, so I definitely agree that and, and second the notion, because I think that's really important to focus on, you know, the work that you're doing and make sure it's what you want to be doing. And I, I think that's a been a theme that we've discussed during our conversation is understanding that basic question of why, you know, re- reflecting on what's important to you and are you achieving the goals that you want to achieve? So I think that's, that's really great advice. Yeah. yeah. In, in terms of achieving your goals, I think there's one more piece that I would love to touch on, you know, which is uh, about maintaining client relationships, because I think that's a piece that everybody who's consulting or running your own studio, they, you know, they have to do, especially in their first year when you're trying to remain, you know, maintain those first clients. Do you have any advice for somebody who's, you know, in that position and, and how do they maintain client relationships throughout the years? Yeah. I mean, this is, everybody does this a little bit differently. You know, I have, uh, friends who, who run a, a competitive firm. Um, and we've, we've, we've competed on projects uh, from time to time and, they, they very much are like, we're family and like our clients are our friends. Um, Mm. and that's, that's their approach to client relationships. Um, that's not my approach. You know, my, my approach is we're a trusted advisor. Uh, and 
you know, that means, you know, you're paying us a lot of money for our opinion. So that means we're going to tell you the truth, no matter what, that's not always going to be fun for you, but yeah. it's going to be valuable, <laughs> right? It's going to be valuable for you. Um, and so that's kind of our, our approach. You know, it has to be authentic. The way you manage your clients has to be authentic to who you are. And, mm-hmm. and their approach is not any more right or wrong than my approach. It's just what suits me. Um, and you know, like my clients know they can't just like call me at any time. They know that, that I'm busy and I have to schedule my time, you know? Right. And so, and, and that's just, that's the way I have it set up in a very kind of like uh professional way, not dissimilar to like, you wouldn't just call up your lawyer and expect him not to send you a bill for that. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good way to look at it. That's true. Yeah. And so why should you just call up a designer? Cause you want to talk. Um, so, you know, that, again, that's what works for me. So, uh, another one of my mentors who he, he runs an, an engineering, uh, mechanical and electric, electrical and an engineering consulting firm. And we've partnered on several projects together. He was like, never, never let a 20 minute conversation take an hour. <laughs> and I love, and that's very much Phil. Like, he's just like, Hey, how's it going? Good. Here's what I need. Bump, bump, bump. Okay. Have a good day. <laughs> love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. He's like, I'm busy. You're busy. Let's go. We got to (laughs) go. Yeah. I remember that day I realized that, you know, Outlook really does push you to create an hour meeting and it's just, it's the default and it was just an eye opener. You know, you should be putting 15 minutes on the calendar. If that's how much time you need, don't put the hour on the calendar. If that's not how much time you actually need. Yep. That's very true. Yeah. And, and I always let clients know too, when they're like, Hey, can we add you to this meeting? I'm like, you're paying for it. So sure. (laughs) And like, Oh, maybe we don't need you on that. I'm like, yeah. So, you know, but I, I think we're very, that, that strategy has led to us having s- several very long-term clients. You know, we have two clients that are on retainer, um, that just, you know, have it, get it, they get a bank of hours every month. Um, a third client that is on like their sixth or seventh project with us. Um, so, you know, I mean, obviously it's always, it's always easier to, get multiple projects with one client than to just always be finding new clients. So it is important to, to build that relationship and, and manage that relationship. And some, some clients I, I have become really good friends with, and you know, we do text each other in the day and, and, and chat sometimes, but that is the, for me, the exception, not, not the rule. And that's not the, to me, that's not the point of it. The point of it is to do great work for you. That's going to make you, make you a lot of money. Yeah. Um, if we become friends in that process, great. If we don't, I'm not offended by that. Right. You know, I have, I have friends. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. I like that. Well, Michael, this has been an incredible chat. And I, I always like, as the last question, I always like to ask about the future, whatever topic we're discussing. And especially now with the changing climate and COVID, I'm really interested to learn what do you think the future of industrial design consultancies and, and studios are you know, especially the smaller size studios and consultancies, what do you think the future is now, you know, with this very changing climate? Well, that's a good question. I do think it's, it's super important to be nimble. And that's something that by definition, a, uh, a small studio te- has that nimbleness. Um, you know, a, bi- a big studio probably has the capacity um, to weather the storms, right? They, they have, 
you know, like a client like Frog is Fortune 100 clients, right? That's that's the only companies that can afford to do business with them. So their business business is probably pretty stable. And a small studio, and and by that I'll define that as anywhere between one and ten people. Also, you know, has they have the what what Frog lacks, um, what, or what they don't have in Frog's client base, they have in nimbleness, right? So they can be nimble, they can reposition their business, they can do other things. The medium-sized studios are where they always struggle in these kinds of financial crunches. They they have some of the overhead of the big guys, but they don't have the cachet. They can't command the uh, the project size. So I guess if you're an independent or small studio, you know you're probably you'll probably weather this well. And in I know we're not technically in an economic downturn, but when you see you know the how well the stock market is doing compared to how big the unemployment rate is, it'd be hard not to guess that there's some kind of a correction mm-hmm. coming. And in those situations, we're already seeing companies prepare for this. There's, there's corporate layoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and design is, is usually one of the first departments to go because the bean counters look at it like, Oh, well, these guys are working on stuff 12 to 24 months from now. We need to make money this quarter. So, They'll, yeah. they'll let go design R and D, and then three months later, somebody will pop up in a meeting like, "Where's all our new products? Oh, we let all the people go. <laughs> we well, better yeah. start hiring design firms." And the companies will end huh. up spending more than they spent on in-house design on design firms. Interesting. <laughs> to catch up. Right? Uh, and I've seen this happen like three times in my career already now. So that, that's kind of the the general cycle. Um, I think industries will shift. We're already we're already seeing that the industries that are spending money on design are, are shifting, right? Like you see, like pet industries doing really well, housewares industries doing really well, any kind of furniture for home is doing really well. So uh, because people are investing in their homes, they're spending more time at homes, they're 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 spending more on their pets, right? Whereas other industries, you know, probably not a great time to be designing a luxury car because who the heck's getting a luxury car when you're not driving anywhere. Hmm. Um, so anyway, it's just important to be aware of the industries that have money to spend and, and targeting them and, and um, building relationships there. Yeah, that's great advice. I think that the future of the industry though, I think overall will not change in that, you know, when I, when I started in design in the late nineties, yeah, basically my small office of two to four people sometimes at our biggest does as much work as like a 20 person office from 20 years ago. And that's just because mm-hmm. the tools are so much more advanced right. and that is that trend is only going to continue. Like one person can do so much now and uh, it's kind of scary, but it's also really amazing and, and exciting. Uh, and so I think that will, will continue to happen. Yeah. I'm very excited to see what the tools are going to be in the future because there have been some incredible tools that have helped, especially now with COVID and working from home. It's incredible because working from home wouldn't have been possible the way it is now, even just five years ago, it would have been very different. So it's, it's amazing to watch the tools improve and suit the needs of designers specifically as well. When I, when I first started in 1998, we were faxing concepts to clients <laughs> yeah. and then and then hand drawing 
hand drawing one-to-one blueprints and FedExing them to the factory. And we thought oh that gosh. was, we thought that was amazing. We're like, this yeah. is, you know, my, my boss who had been in the industry for 20 plus years was like, oh man, we used to have to like fly somewhere to present concepts. And now we just fax them. And so, you know, he thought that was amazing. And now for me, it's like, we're just, you know, sketching things on the iPad and putting together a PDF and doing a zoom meeting. And that feels amazing. So mm-hmm. chart out what the next 20 years will be like. Yeah, right. it's gonna be it's gonna be ama- it's gonna be radically different. Um, so, <laughs> well, well, somebody listening to this in the future just heard me laugh about faxing, and, and they're gonna be laugh- laughing about Zoom calls. So, right, they're like Zoom calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look at look at them talking about Zoom calls and sketch on the iPad. I, I, I look forward to the moment when we can look back at this and be laughing and, and see what the new tools are. Yeah, Michael Datulo, it's been incredible to talk to you, and thank you so much for sharing all your advice and input. I've learned so much from this conversation. And I have a lot to take away. So I really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Hello, all you Explodivy listeners. I hope you enjoyed the chat today with Michael DeTullo. I think he had such incredible advice to share. And I really appreciate him taking the time to walk through some of these really fine details, which I think sometimes can be overlooked or you don't really hear about them if you are going out on your own. You kind of discover them as you're going. At least that was the case for me as I was starting off. So I think if you are deciding to go out on your own, this is a really good episode to kind of hear the advice and go back and listen to once you do take that step. I think one important thing I do want to highlight from the show today is to prepare yourself as much as possible without getting too bogged down. Because I think at least for me, sometimes thinking of all the things that are coming up or that you have to plan for can be a bit overwhelming. And a lot of these things kind of come with time as you kick off and start doing it. But I will say, from my experience, one of the most important things to make sure it's something you truly want to do. And Michael echoed that as well. Um, But also having a strong network of people around you to support you. And you can hear that from Michael DeTullo. And when he was starting off, he reached out to a lot of mentors to ask for their advice. And I was lucky enough to have a very similar experience when I kicked off. It's just having a strong network of people around you that you can rely on and lean on and ask for advice when situations do come up that you're not sure what to do. So I think that's really important. So make sure it's something you truly want to do and have a strong network. So I want to thank you for listening to the show today. If you did enjoy it, please don't forget to subscribe. It helps the show go further. And if you want to see what episodes are about to launch, you can check out the Instagram account at Explodive View Podcast. You can also message me on the Instagram account if there's any topics that you'd like to hear about on the show. Okay, talk to you next time on Explodive View.